Okay, that's all the time you're getting. We're going to get this going. Say hi. And then have a seat. We are going to be in the book of Matthew, and we'll be in chapter 18. My hope is, uh, as a church, that um, 10, 20 years from now, we look back and uh, we talk about all the people that we have sent to different places. And we are certainly not the church sending uh, Chad and Jamie, but we probably will be the church to send Mike and Jen Wheeler. Uh, and I just want to be remembered by God's grace as a church that equipped people and sent them out to go do bigger and better and greater things than we could. So. Um, awesome just to uh, partner with them. And we're in Matthew chapter 18, and uh, I'm going to read uh, the first 14 verses. You, if you've been following around the study guide, it's broken down a little bit different than uh, what I've been going through because the study guide's made very early, uh, and then when we kind of delve into it a little more deeply, either the Spirit or Sam, I'll let you choose which one, does uh, something different. And so I decided to break it up a little bit different. So that's why it's different. wasn't intended that way, but the Lord does what He does. So Matthew chapter 18, first 14 verses, here's what God's Word says. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to Him a child, He put Him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children... He'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? A man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray. Does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This is God's Word. Let me pray so I don't mess it up. Father, we thank You for Your Word. It is the power of salvation for those who believe. Pray that You will teach us, Holy Spirit. Lift the veil from our hearts and comfort those of us who need comfort and convict those of us who need conviction. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So last week we uh, were reminded that the three synoptic Gospels, and that's just a big fancy word to say, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Those three Gospels tell the one story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection relatively in the same order and in the same way. And while each writer, according to Peter, was carried along by the Holy Spirit, which means they didn't just make it up, they were inspired by the Spirit to write what they wrote, they also each spoke from God in their own voice. These guys are unique. They have unique personalities. They have unique styles. They have unique experiences. They even have unique perspectives. And we see that fleshed out in these three Gospels, even though it's the same story. Matthew, that we've been studying, organizes his Gospel like a teacher. It's probably why I like it so much. I taught high school for ten years. He organizes his like a teacher. And he portrays Jesus as a teacher And one of his primary purposes is to equip those who are reading it to be teachers. So you have a teacher portraying Jesus as a teacher, equipping us to be teachers. That's really what this book does for us in many ways. And so our text in Matthew 18 is actually the fourth of five 
kind of discourses or, or uh, lengthy explanations by Jesus describing the character of the kingdom that he is king over. So there are five kind of breaks, if you will, in the book. And you may have noticed some, probably haven't. The first break was in Matthew 5-7. through 7. <clears throat> That was the Sermon on the Mount. It's the first lengthy lesson, if you will, by Jesus. And we call it the discipleship lesson. It teaches what it means and what it is to be a disciple. just describes through the Beatitudes and others. The second section begins in chapter 10. And in chapter 10, He sends out the 12 disciples out onto the mission field, tells them they're going to be persecuted, and it's really the mission lesson. The third section is in Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, you may recall, He tells a lot of parables. He tells stories and then publicly kind of leaves them ambiguous and then privately explains them to the disciples. That's the parable of the sower and the mustard seed and the pearl of great price and those kind of things. Call this kind of the hidden lesson. Skip the fourth for a second. The fifth and final kind of section is begins in Matthew 24, and we'll hit that someday. Um, Matthew 24, and it's on the um, Mount of Olives, and it's Jesus talking at length about the last days, how the world's going to end. It's a very intriguing passage, and it will be an awesome passage to go through. It's kind of called the last days lesson. And so each of the five sections... We know where they end because they all end with the same phrase. Again, Matthew's structuring it like a teacher, organized. And they all end with the phrase, when he finished saying these things. That's when you know what ends. And in saying that, Matthew is connecting Jesus with Moses who wrote the five books of the law, the Pentateuch, and in many ways fulfilling what Moses said would be a greater or better Moses, another prophet who would come, that being Jesus. The fourth one that I skipped over that we're talking about is today in Matthew 18. And this is um, Jesus' lengthy kind of explanation or description of the church. Matthew 16, He said, I've come to build my church. And now He's describing really uh, what the community looks like. We'll call it the community lesson. And just as Moses in the book of Exodus, led his people out of slavery from Egypt and established a brand new community unlike anything Egypt had ever seen. Jesus leads his people out of slavery to sin and he builds and creates a new kind of community, the church, different than the world has ever seen. And the mistake the church makes is trying to act like communities of the world. They are intended to be different in nature. They are not like, there are plenty of communities to pick from. There are plenty of communities that will give you way cooler events than the church could ever think up. There are all kinds of clubs and memberships you can be a part of. The church is supposed to be and is something uniquely different. And Jesus is going to explain how that works. And it's going to be Rather convicting, honestly. He has just told Peter, if you remember last week, that we're free. We are sons of the King. We are free in Jesus. But that freedom that we have is not for us. Paul says, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans chapter 6, he says something that may shock us. He says, we have been set free from sin to become slaves of righteousness. Again, he says later in that chapter, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. When Jesus told Peter that sons are free, Peter, later in life, in his own epistle, understood it this way in 1 Peter 1.16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Now, when you hear that, like you're free to be a slave. You're free to be a servant. doesn't sound like freedom. At least not to a warm-blooded American, right? doesn't sound like freedom to me. The reason it doesn't sound like freedom to most people, perhaps just most Americans, us, 
is because most people don't view it through a biblical lens of love. In Reason for God, which is an excellent book by Tim Keller, he wrote this, quote, Love is the most liberating freedom loss of all. Love is the most liberating freedom loss of all. And if you're married, this makes sense. Because when you get married, you lay down at the altar at which you get married at some freedom. By choice. And intimacy and love requires that. If I'm married, I can't just go, you know what, hon? I'm going to make all the decisions and never counsel you in any way. Right? As a bachelor, I had that freedom. My decisions were mine, and now my decisions are ours. And to not counsel and to not ask and to not talk about that is not just dumb, but it will result in ruining the relationship. When I got married, I chose that I was going to be intimate with one woman. I laid down my freedom to be you know, in relationship with whoever I wanted. There are certain losses of freedom, but those losses produce amazing love. My willingness to lay down my freedom is the only way true intimacy is possible. It's the only way true joy and fulfillment is possible. It's the only way where genuine relationship can occur. In other words, genuine relationship requires self-denial and the giving up of personal autonomy. It requires it. It's not possible without it. In many ways, this kind of surrender of freedom and liberty is not where freedom's lost. It's actually where it's found. And I think that goes for personal relationships like marriage, but also corporate ones. And this is what Jesus is going to talk about. That as you become part of a family of families, the church, you lay down some freedoms. Not because it's right to do that. Because it's a joy to do that. There's relationships that are created are only possible with that kind of freedom laying down, if you will. So Jesus in this discourse, in this fourth one, He gives us a picture of the kinds of kingdom relationships that we are designed to have in Him. And I'll be honest with you, they're very difficult for us to hear because they're very different than we have experienced, many of us. And very difficult difficult for us to live out ourselves. But entering into this kind of relationship is is only possible when a radical conversion occurs. This is why Jesus says the first couple verses that truly I say to you, unless you turn, which is a transformation type of term, we turn and become something new like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So, to give context, according to the Gospel of Mark, which again, synoptic gospel, same story, a little bit different in terms of how they tell it. But this story is there, and according to Mark, after the private exchange, which is only recorded in Matthew, that Jesus had with Peter about tax and fish, we talked about last week, he turns to the rest of the disciples and he says, Hey guys, what were you talking about on the way? as we were walking to Capernaum in the house where they're, where they're at now. And in Mark it says they didn't say anything. It says they kept silent because they knew what they had been talking about. They had been arguing over who the greatest would be in the kingdom of heaven. So when Jesus says here they asked, it's more like He read their minds. He knows what they've been talking about. They didn't tell Him. And it didn't make it any better even if they had asked. But they're wondering, who's going to be the greatest when your kingdom comes? King who was on the mountain and transfiguration, awesomeness. Who's going to be the awesomest in your kingdom? I think it's going to be me. I think, oh, no, it's going to be me. Greatness in our world today has a very clear definition. Greatness sometimes is being a winner. Greatness is power. Greatness is wealth. Greatness 
is good looks. Greatness is position. Sometimes greatness is influence. Greatness is intelligence or virtue. All of us have a definition. If asked, hey, what makes someone great? Well, influence, power, position, achievement, education. See, even though the world's understanding of greatness probably differs slightly from man to man, woman to woman, there's one shared thing they all have. It's all focused on increasing the greatness of man. In Mark, Jesus tells them, if anyone would be first, greatest, he must be last of all and servant of all. So Jesus declares greatness. He's just going to define it. He says, here's what greatness is, guys. And it's something that's totally countercultural. If we were to ask what greatness is the world, we would not come up with Jesus' definition. Greatness is power. Greatness is wealth. Greatness is smarts. Greatness is education. Greatness is beauty. It's also counterintuitive. Like, we can't just look out in the world. We have to look right here because that's how we feel. We get depressed because we're not great. Like, all of us, okay, maybe just me. Let's a little insight into Sam's heart. Ready? Ready? We all want to be great at something. I want my thing. Like, what's my thing that I'm great at? That thing we can put on the resume. What are your hobbies? Well, I skydive, right? Whatever. I want to be a good drawer. I want to be a good plumber. I want to be a good preacher. I want to be a good dad. Whatever great greatness is being a great dad. That's not what Jesus says. Doesn't mean it's wrong to be a great dad. It's counterintuitive to us. He says here that to be great, we actually must choose to become small and make everyone else great. That's hard. That's hard in life. That's hard in marriage. That's hard in a community of people. In Matthew here, Jesus says the same thing, but a different way. He beckons a young child over to him and sits him kind of in the center of this group of disciples who are talking, and he says, you need to turn, right, change direction, and become like children. And what he's talking about is, when you talk about entering the kingdom of God, you're talking about becoming a Christian. And becoming a Christian does not simply mean, well, you need to become childish in your thinking. right? We don't know what childish thinking is wouldn't hurt us to think more simply. And, but it's not the idea of just being childish in our thinking. Children at this time were the, the lowest of positions. Not in terms of value, like they're not worth anything, but in terms of their contribution to society. They were purely dependent. They weren't going to be given much to anyone Jesus is charging us to do something more than just think like children or have a childlike faith, which you probably have heard, which is nothing wrong, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about here choosing to assume a lower position, to embrace a particular disposition first toward God, then toward men. Becoming a Christian means simply this. You are going to turn. Now, I'm not telling you how this happens. I'm saying what happens. When someone becomes a Christian, they turn from self trust and they turn toward fatherly trust. That's the heart of it. Becoming a Christian is turning away from self trust and toward fatherly trust. Becoming children means this I need to be fed, like all children. Children need to be provided for. Children need to be taught because they don't know everything. Children need to trust in what the Father says simply because He says it and they may not understand it. Children need to be protected. Children need to be disciplined. Children need to be loved. I think of my child. So I've got five. 
The youngest is uh, just turned one. And if I set her down on the floor and walk away, within time she will die. If I do not feed her, if I do not love her, if I do not provide for her, if I just go, hey, figure it out. Can't do that. She's dependent upon me. There's no way she can survive without me. My 10-year-old thinks he can survive without me. Right? As we get older, we come to this place of like, well, I don't really need you. I can figure this out. And we've seen our five from 13-year-old figure things out. Right? You take that into a spiritual realm where we try to be self-dependent apart from God. And we first become Christians, we know, like as I know I need God. And then, as we get older, sometimes we begin to think God needs us. Children realize something about themselves. Well, I should say, to become a child is to realize something about yourself. And it's simply this. I need God. I need God in every interaction. I need God in every situation. I need God in every moment of my life. I need God to provide for me. I need God to teach me. I need God to love me. I need God to protect me. I need God to provide for me. I need God to discipline me. That's next week. Entering the kingdom of God requires a fundamental change, not of mind, but of heart. I like how David Platt said it. Jesus calls his disciples to humility of heart, not childishness of thought. It's a heart thing we're talking about. And here's where the grace of God comes in. I can't change my own heart, and I can't change yours, but God can. I'm even dependent upon him for that change. The truth is, to enter the kingdom of God, you don't need more knowledge. You don't need more virtue. You don't need more accomplishment. You need more humility, which is a gift from God. And the smartest and the wealthiest and the most skilled and the most successful, the most spiritual, the most beautiful, the most gifted, the great need to become like children. Because problem with our flesh is that when we're great in any of those things, beauty, virtue, education, intelligence, giftedness, we begin to depend upon that. And believe that God is going to receive us because of that. We need to become like children realize we need Him. I believe conversion of an individual occurs when the Spirit reveals our utter need for God. And we, by grace, turn to trust the Father completely. Trust Him completely. And I wish this was a, like, you just make a decision like, that's it, I trust you. It just doesn't work that way. If it's like any other relationship, which it's not, because every other relationship is a sinful person with a sinful person, right? But relationship with God is a sinful person with a holy, perfect, sinless person who can be trusted completely. But it takes a while for this flesh to figure that out. A lifetime. But I believe we can do it. And it's through Christ that that happens. Do we realize that the Son of God, the infinite, eternal Son of God, literally became a child? Jesus, it says in Philippians 2, made Himself nothing. Take taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted, made Him great. The pathway to greatness, the pathway to being exalted and being in the presence of God is through humility. We must be humble. And this is not just a decision. It's an entire life disposition that we will struggle with. We must be humble enough to say, Lord, I need you. And once you say that, everything changes.
When your disposition toward God is changed, our disposition toward men is completely transformed. The Spirit of Christ comes to dwell in us and we receive the mind of Christ. We have the power to actually act as Christ acted in Philippians 2. What is the mind of Christ? To think of others as more important than myself. If someone asks, what's your definition of greatness? To think of everyone else as more important and better than me. Sounds crazy. Well, most things of God do sound foolish. But think about a family, a whole community of spirit-filled children. With the mind of Christ, what does that look like? It looks like, I'll say supposed to look like, a community unlike anything the world has ever seen. And Jesus says, the first thing we do is we receive one another as Jesus received us. We receive one another. That's what He says. Whoever receives one such a child in My name receives Me. Now, again, don't fall into... Jesus is not talking about children. He just told us He's talking about Christians. He says a decision to embrace even the littlest Christian is a decision to embrace Jesus Himself. Now, we naturally and very easily celebrate the big Christian. The loud Christian, the strong Christian, the gifted Christian, the great Christian. That's easy. We are to receive, though, and Jesus reminds us to embrace the small, the quiet, and the humble servants among us who are often ignored. In this church, there are many humble, quiet servants whose names you may not ever learn who clean toilets and start coffee and do the things that seem insignificant until you go to the bathroom in a dirty toilet and the coffee is out in the back. And then suddenly that person's really important, right? But it's not just the little people. He's not calling us to He's calling us to something different. Not just to tolerate one another. Not just to sit next to one another. Not just to go on mission with one another. Not even just to respect one another. He actually calls us to receive one another. He calls us to act like family. To embrace one another. And we all know what family's like. Family's weird. We got weirdos in it, and you might be the weirdo from someone in your family's perspective, right? But we're family. We embrace the weirdness. We embrace the brokenness. We embrace that we're different. Being the same doesn't make us family. Having the same last name is what makes us family. The same identity in Christ is what makes us family. And so we are to receive one another, not just walk by one another to receive one another. Paul describes the church in Ephesians chapter 2. The whole book of Ephesians is beautiful for this. But he says this, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The household, the family of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And in Ephesians 4 says, together as everyone functions and acts like family, you're built up in love. Jesus said in John 13, the last thing He said, here's what will mark you guys as my disciples. Here's how people will know you're my disciples. You love one another. That's not just saying, I go to this church where this person goes. It's truly receiving one another, loving one another, caring for one another. We need to be humble enough to embrace one another as family in all of our quirkiness, weirdness, and brokenness receive one another. Jesus says more though. When we begin to truly receive one another, we grow in our 
compulsion and desire to protect one another. What do I teach my boys about their sister? You protect them. What do I teach my boys about each other? You protect one another. Stand up for family. Guard each other. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Being a part of the same spiritual family means that we protect one another from sin and temptation, especially sin that comes from within. I find that Christians are often concerned too much about sin on the outside of the church and too little concern for sin on the inside of the church. Jesus warns us, Paul warns us often about the sin that comes from within. So if we are in the same family, then I know that I'm responsible for you, and I hope you know you're responsible on some level for me, for my holiness. I'm responsible for your holiness maybe a different way as a pastor, but as a brother in Christ, as brothers and sisters, we are responsible if we're in the same family for one another's holiness at some level to at least protect it. If I see you as a child, if you are a child, then I know that you're vulnerable. And my first priority is to protect you from me. And your first priority is to protect me from you. I am constantly aware, or ought to be, I can't say that I am because I don't think all of us or any of us are enough, but we need to be constantly aware that my choices, if we're going to be family, my good choices and my bad choices have the power to influence others, good and bad. And we do not want a brother or sister to sin as a result of us. So we must be humble enough to protect like family. And that's only possible if I view you as a child. If I view you as a child, then I, again, know you're vulnerable. But I only know that because I view myself as a child and I know that I'm vulnerable. I know that I have a flesh I know that you can cause me to sin. I know that the world can tempt me to sin. I know that I'm weak. Jesus warns about temptations that will come, and I think it should cause us to pause a little bit because he calls them necessary. That's James, when he wrote his letter, helps us to say that these trials that come, these temptations that come, are designed to build our faith, not break us down. But Jesus says, Woe to the world! for temptations to sin. For it's necessary that temptation come, but woe to the one from whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown to eternal fire. From a Jewish perspective, when they say enter life, they believe that when you are resurrected from the dead, you are resurrected in the body that you have. Some people are going, oh, great. But... That was before restoration. But when you first entered into eternal life, you came in crippled, lame, whatever you happened to be, until you were restored. That's why, from a Jewish perspective, it's being explained, but why Matthew doesn't explain it. But what we see is that the health of our family and our community, and I would say your own family and your own marriage and this community, is dependent upon how seriously you take your sin. In regards to sin, we are not to just minimize it. We're not just to manage it away or convince ourselves that we can handle it. That's the worst thing you can do. We are supposed to kill sin. But as I was thinking about that, which is a very famous common thing to say, I realized that we don't kill sin. I don't think we actually possess that power. That's Jesus' job but we certainly can kill the portals through which sin comes. And if we are devoted to the protection of others, then we need to be ruthless first about protecting our own hearts. And that means that we must choose to love God so much 
that we are willing to remove whatever might hinder that love. Not even whatever does hinder that love, whatever might hinder that love. I think a commitment to one another's holiness requires a willingness to lay down our freedom for a moment out of love. And that liberty can be lots of things. Jesus says we are free. That can be everything to, to what we eat or drink or what we say or what we do. Like We are free. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Galatians 5.1, right? It's for freedom that Christ set us free. But recognize that our freedom can hurt others. So we must be willing out of love, out of protection, to lay down a liberty that we don't have to, but we want to out of love. But that is only possible if we see that we also must be committed to our own holiness first. And that requires possibly a willingness to lay down a liberty for a lifetime. To say that I am more interested in my holiness than I am in my fleshly happiness. So I'm going to lay this down, though I don't have to, but I need to. Because it hinders me from loving God. It hinders me from loving God's people. Entering life, eternal life, is worth any sacrifice. And avoiding hell is worth any price. And here's what it comes down to. You must be humble enough to receive one another's family and humble enough to protect one another, but also humble enough to admit that we are weak. You're not as strong as you think you are. And that you need family. You actually need family to protect you. Need family to speak into your life. Need family at times to discipline you. You need family. Because you need a group of people you can admit, I need God. I don't have it together. Can you help? But I think the last one is perhaps the most challenging for us in the last four verses. The community that Jesus builds is a community that's supposed to shepherd one another. It says in verse 10, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of that one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I see you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that never went astray. So Jesus says we shouldn't despise. means we shouldn't ignore or look down on or treat even the littlest of Christian with indifference or worse. In fact, we are to pay particular attention to sheep who wander from the flock. He wants us concerned for the lost. It's not the lost of the world. It's the lost of the children. The little children, the little Christians who are tempted to walk away from gospel community. From the church. And we are commanded to love sheep that are different than us. We're commanded to love sheep that are difficult for us. We're commanded to love sheep that are even far away from us. That are distant. This is not just the command to the pastor. This is not... Jesus is not talking to pastors. Pastors, make sure you shepherd your flock. Though there are certainly verses like that. This is the church, the priesthood of believers. A flock of shepherds shepherding one another. If there is a wandering sheep there should be more than just one shepherd seeking after it. The truth is, it's easy to love nice sheep. I love fluffy sheep. Nice sheep, quiet sheep, cute sheep, perfume, potpourri smelling sheep, right? There's no problem loving those sheep. That's not the kind of sheep Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the sheep that are ugly. The sheep that bite. The sheep you can't stand. The sheep that are loud. The sheep that keep running away every time you take a step toward them. Those sheep.
I've always been struck by the end of John when a resurrected Jesus is eating a meal with his friends, with Peter and James and Nathaniel and Andrew, I believe, are there. And he talks to Peter and he really challenges him three times in connection with the three times he denied Jesus. He says this, though, in verse 15 of chapter 21. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. You know the these that he's talking about? It's friends. It's easy to love your friends. It's easy to shepherd your friends. The people like you. The people that aren't difficult. Oh, they might be a little difficult, but really not difficult, difficult, like that person that's in your mind right now that you can't stand. That Christian that you interact with at our church, maybe not at our church, you go, I'll be glad when they're gone. That person. Jesus said it's not just a pastor's job to follow after them and to love them. It's your job. It's a family's job. Anyone can love their friends. That's easy. Anyone can show up on a Sunday and talk with their friends. We're all guilty of that, right? What's hard is talking to the little Christians that aren't going to stand out, the ones that are different than you, the ones that are unfamiliar to you, the ones that are difficult for you, the ones that you don't like, or you don't want to take the time to know. We have to fight the temptation to relinquish our responsibility to pursue. And I think many of us find it difficult to chase the wandering sheep because they leave for lots of reasons. Some leave for pride. They go, yeah, you deserve it. Some leave for pain. They're hurt. And you're like, shouldn't be hurt. Or you're like, well, I didn't know how to deal with that, so better just to leave. Some go for pleasure, right? They just want to live in the world, and we think, well, go for it. We're not supposed to just say, go for it. We're not supposed to just wash our hands. Jesus says we're supposed to chase after. And I think sometimes we rejoice over the fact that they're gone more than we rejoice over their return, if they return. Many of us are like, oh man, that was so much easier with them gone now. That's so much good. Honestly, um, so I've been a pastor now for eight years, nine years. I've had that experience where I think, oh, so much easier with them gone. Man, they were a loud, tough sheep. Maybe they were just a goat. Like, makes me feel better. Right? They weren't really a sheep. They're not really my responsibility. I let them go. And the Lord has really convicted my heart over the years to the point where people go, why don't you just let them be? And I said, they're sheep. And there's been many times where I've chased those sheep for many, over many hills. And there are times, I do believe, where you start chasing and you're so far from the flock, you're like, okay, at some point i got to turn around. And what I found as a pastor is that I'll turn around and it's at that moment that sheep who's really hurt turns around and goes, hmm, it sees me walking the other way. They go, oh, I know you didn't love me. I've been chasing you for a long time. So there is a point, I think, where you go, okay, you got to go. But I don't know if we ever get to that point. How far do we wander? How far do we chase? I think we relinquish our responsibility quicker than we probably should. And when that sheep returns, regardless of the reason, whether with pain, pleasure, pride, whatever, we celebrate We celebrate their return. We celebrate that the wayward has returned. We need to be humble enough to go outward to find the wayward that have left or perhaps are lost in here right now. The thing about that concept is that you can easily fall into a place of like, you need to do this to be the church. Here's what Jesus says at the very end here in verse 14. He wraps it all up to reveal that he 
actually hasn't been talking about us at all. Verse 14, he says, So, it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. See, Jesus isn't giving us a list of actions that please the Father as much as He's giving us a list of appropriate responses to the Father who already acted on our behalf. God's family acts like this. They love like this. They serve like this. They, They pursue one another and receive one another like this because they know they have become children of God. That God walked into the devil's adoption agency and plucked us out and had nothing to do with any greatness in us. It's only possible, I believe, to find and enter and live in the kingdom of heaven through humility, but humility is only possible when we behold the humility of Christ and believe, truly believe, that this is how Jesus has loved us. That Jesus served us, right? The Son of God actually became a child to the point of death, even death on the cross. That the Son of God, Jesus, received us in all of our brokenness. We think we're so great. We think like, Jesus, you're lucky I'm on your team, right? We really think that. We don't realize how broken and ugly and rebellious and bad and stinky sheep we are. Yet Jesus said, I love you, stinky sheep. You are one ugly sucker, but I love you. He received us. That Jesus protected us. And He went to... He laid down every liberty possible. He went to the cross for sinners without sin. He shed His blood. He sacrificed everything He had to sacrifice to protect us. And Jesus pursued us. Though we ran... He pursued us and He didn't let us get away. It's because Jesus did those things, I can love. Because Jesus first loved me, I can love. Because Jesus humbled Himself and has given me His mind, I can be humble enough to love. How do I become humble enough? What do I do? Well, let me help you really briefly. Because it's like, how do I start? Here's what I think. If you confess to be a Christian, I would suggest humbly that you start living as if you actually are humble enough. What's that look like? First, start looking at Jesus and stop looking at yourself. That's where it begins. Second, Start relating to God as a child and stop depending on yourself. Third, start viewing the church as a family and stop living by yourself. Fourth, start knowing others and stop talking about yourself. Fifth, start confessing your weakness. Stop lying to yourself. And sixth, start serving others and stop waiting to be served yourself. And lastly, start pursuing the wayward and the difficult and the different and the distant and stop just caring for yourself. And I believe, motivated by what Christ has done for you, empowered by the mind of Christ in you, that you will be able to live that out and that it will change you. Basically, be humble enough to lose yourself so that Jesus can live through you. And we come to the table every Sunday to remind ourselves of the death of ourselves and the life we have in Christ. The Lord's table is not just where we proclaim or symbolize, but it is actually where we experience the love of Jesus who died for us. There's a mystery to it. There's a power to it. 
The Lord's table is where we learn this is the definition of love. Love hurts, and that's not just a song. That's the death of our Savior. How do I know if I loved enough? How do I know if I cared enough? Does it hurt? Does it require sacrifice? That's love like Christ. It's going to hurt, but it's going to lead to joy. It's going to be laying down your liberty, but it's going to lead to joy. And I believe the table here is where we receive the power to love. If you're not a Christian, this is not for you. You're too dependent upon yourself. You've found hope and joy and meaning in yourself and your own greatness, and I'm telling you, it ain't that great, but Jesus is infinitely greater. You need to lay it down. You realize that you ain't going to make it by yourself. You're not as strong as you think. You are weak. Jesus already knows that. And he says, look, I love you. Why don't you let me love you? And for those who are Christians, for those who have been viewing the church and the community as something different than what Jesus says, you have some repenting to do. We all do. If you have tried to relinquish your responsibility to love the community you're in by staying distant, that needs to be confessed. The bottom line is this. If you don't need Jesus, don't come to this table. It's only for people who truly need Him. I take communion twice because it's two services because I know we need Him. Right? We get doubly need. If you don't need Jesus, but we all do. And He knows it. And He loves you. And He's offering free forgiveness. If you just believe that He lived the sinless life you should have and died the death you should have for your sins in your place and rose the third day to prove it was true. And he was the Son of God. And He offers you free salvation if you just repent and believe it. It's that simple. Pray that you'll be part of our family. Let's pray. Holy Father, we come before You humbly recognizing that there is no humility in our hearts that comes from us. We are a prideful lot. We think we are stronger than we are. And we need you to help us be children in our thinking, and in our feeling, and in our acting. Lord, would you just reveal our need for you today? Would you remind us of how weak we are? of how rebellious we've been. Would you remind us as we look at the cross, the lengths that you have gone to show your love for us, the depth of your love for us? Lord, we cry out that we need you, and you cry back, I love you. And that brings such awesome comfort and joy. Let us sing for that joy today. It is in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, whom we pray returns quickly. Amen.